Are there any more beautiful words than the ones we just sang in that final stanza? Jesus, Savior, blessed Redeemer, filled with mercy, that wideness of mercy that we sang about earlier, overflowing, I'm forgiven, without measure, friend of sinners, glorious King, friend of sinners, glorious King. The Lord, our Savior and the King is with us right now. He's meeting with us in the midst of this service. He's assuring us of the truth of his promises. He's opening to us through the power of his Holy Spirit the truths of his word that our minds would be enlightened as Paul prays in Ephesians. That our hearts would be changed. That we would grow from one degree of glory unto the next. As the Lord promises to attend the reading and the preaching of his word, I want you to to know at this point in the service, we're not ceasing to worship. We're not stopping and and quitting worship, and now we're sort of in in lecture or in class time, and we're just getting out our our pencils and our, our pads. We're in the midst of worship as we enter into the message. This too is a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. And we are offering up our hearts to him, lifting them up that he might meet us in the truth of that word. And so as you come before the Lord's word this morning, and as I with you come, let's open up our hearts to this grand story of redemption, this story of Joseph. And let's see the beautiful twist in the story that God gives us here in Genesis 42. We'll pick up the reading in verse 1 of this chapter and extend to the end of the chapter. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to them. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed before them, uh, their faces to the ground. And Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers. And he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested, by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Uh, Send one of you and let them bring your brother while the rest of you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. 
or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us as spies of the land. But he said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of a fa- one father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me, and then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land." As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to him, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. Uh, And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we, having heard this story, having heard this, this portion of the Joseph narrative now in the hearing of all of your people, we would ask that you through the Spirit would help us as we attend to this word. We are dependent upon you to bring to light that which needs to be believed and, and what needs to be understood in wisdom and what needs to be practiced in obedience. We, we need you to help us 
the power of the Holy Spirit now to inwardly digest this word. And in doing so, for it to begin to give shape to our lives in a fresh and new way, that more of Jesus would be true of us in the process. Hear this petition and answer it according to your will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, what a story this is. <laughs> what a story this is. You're joining us in the midst of this story. It's, well, it's almost too long to go back and rehearse everything, but we can hit a few of the high points. This Joseph that we just read about in this story, this ruler of the land of Egypt, as he is called, is, is actually the son of Jacob. He was sold by brothers who... Um, were very jealous of him, uh, probably somewhere in the range of 21 to 26, 27 years from the point in which we're reading here in the text. Sold into slavery to Ishmaelite traders who made their way all the way to Egypt, and boy, did he run into all kinds of trouble once he landed in Egypt. <laughs> all kind of injustice was done to him, one upon another, and yet by God's kindness and his providence, through the turn of the Lord's will, Joseph now finds himself second in charge in Egypt. He is what we might call a prime minister under Pharaoh, referred to as the ruler of the land in the text which we just read. And these brothers who sold him into slavery, he hadn't seen in 21 plus years at the point where we are in Genesis 42. And this is the very first time he lays his eyes on them. Now, if that's not a story worth reading and listening to with intrigue and, and plot crisis and everything else in the midst of it, I don't know what is. And some of the interchanges that you see in the midst of this story teaches you about the challenges that Joseph has already undergone. And you can see there's more to be had in the chapters to come. We just find ourselves at the beginning place. We might say laying foundations for a repentance and a reconciliation. It's going to happen in the pages to come. The thing that stuck out to me as I was reading in this chapter this week was, well, God's control. That God is committed to his people. And he's committed to his people even when his people aren't committed to him at all. <laughs> Especially these brothers in the midst of this passage. They haven't been following the Lord. They have not been pursuing the Lord. But boy, God's pursuing them in this passage. He's pursuing them with this famine. He's pursuing them through the person of Joseph. He's pursuing them through all of the little events that happen here in Genesis 42. He's after them. And he's after them not in the way they fear, I think. The way that, well, he's like, you know, holding a, a hammer in heaven waiting to smash them. Oh, yes, there are consequences for the actions that they've taken, but he's actually bringing them to the end of themselves in order to extend to them the mercy and the grace that they desperately need. I was reminded of Shakespeare this week, The Merchant of Venice. Some of you will know it. Lancelot talking to Gabo in the midst of that story, querying about the murder that has taken place in the play. In this little verbal chess match that the two of them are having, Lancelot says to him, listen, in the end, the hiddenness of this murder will come to light. The truth will out. Indeed, it will. That's this story. You see, the truth of what happened to Joseph many years ago with these brothers is haunting these brothers 
through the providence of God, putting them in a variety of crises in this passage, not in order to simply break them as if to destroy them, but to break them in order to remake them according to the grace and the mercy of God. And I want you to see those crises in this passage because there's a crisis almost in every paragraph that leads us to the crisis that saves us in this passage. Well, first it's this crisis of famine, right? It's, it's right on the top of the text. That's where the whole text enters. Here is Jacob with his, his, his boys now, right there in the land of Canaan, this place that's supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey, this place of abundance, is now wrecked with famine. And they're in a destitute place. They're, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel, so to speak. And then Jacob hears of grainware. There's grain somewhere. There's grain in Egypt. Now, as soon as that word comes out, you would expect there to be tremendous excitement among all of these hungry boys in the house of Jacob. Finally, we're going to get some grain. We're beginning to wonder, you know, skin and bones. My ribs were showing. It's time to get some good carbohydrates into this body, some strength and some, and some, some thickness back on for the labors that we have in the field. But that's not what you see with the boys at all. In fact, it's kind of a curious beginning, isn't it? Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? You think to yourself, huh, that's curious. Why do you look at one another? It's as if Jacob was expecting a different response from his boys once the news of grain in Egypt had come forward. And he sees them awkwardly kind of eyeing one another. What's going on in the midst of this passage? Well, some have argued that maybe this is just laziness on the behalf of these boys. Um, they've, got a, they've got a kind of a weak streak running through them. Maybe the lack of sustenance is actually getting through. Or maybe they're just indecisive. They can't really decide what to do, even though it seemed quite clear. You jump on your donkey and you go to Egypt and you get some bread. I mean, that's kind of what you do in a moment where you're starving to death. So it doesn't seem like there's a lot of thought that needs to go into it. But maybe the fact that they're standing around awkwardly and looking at one another has to do with that word, Egypt. You see, they remember from 21 years ago that it was Ishmaelite traders who made their way through the land of Canaan whom they sold on their way to Egypt, the text told us. Could it be that when they hear E-G-Y-P-T, they hear a haunting memory? Uh, the memory of the brother that they sold into slavery. And when their father comes in with delighted news of grain in Egypt, it hits them as, what does this mean? We've been avoiding that place like the plague. And now the plague has come to us. And it's as if all of creation is surrounding us and ordering our path to go to Egypt. It's as if God is on a mission with the crisis and the famine. You know, we all have those moments in our lives, maybe it's even a word or two in our lives where we hear that word, that name of that family member, that place, um, that circumstance, and um, haunting memories come. And we've tried to avoid that person. <laughs> we've tried to avoid that place and that circumstance because each time we do, it reminds us of guilt. It reminds us of what it is that we've done wrong. 
And maybe we've stayed silent about it, as they have. Unconfessed sin, hidden in the recesses of the heart. We confessed about this in Psalm 32 just earlier in our service, didn't we? David spoke about when he kept silent, his bones wasted away. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Isn't it interesting that David, as he speaks of an unconfessed sin, holding within the soul, uses a metaphor that looks like starvation in Psalm 32. His bones drying up, his flesh wasting away by the heat of summer. Long had these brothers avoided this subject, but now with Egypt being their destination, they can't avoid it uh, any longer. And the mention of it has stopped them in their tracks. Because this is a possibility for all to be known, for the truth to be out, so to speak. One commentator speaking on the passage from this point says it this way, Through the famine, God initiates the saving process by which he forces the family to confront their past and each other. This forcing the family, this ordering of providence in such a way where they can't escape the fact that they're going to have to go to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt... There's a possibility that they could lay their eyes on one called Joseph. Now, I can only imagine, and it is speculation, but as they make their way to Egypt, they think to themselves, there's a lot of people in Egypt. I mean, what's the chances of us running into Joseph? I mean, he would be a household slave after all, and I would think in the context that we're going to be in that we would be running into Joseph. And then one of them says, well, you do remember that dream, don't you? You remember that dream he told us 20-something years ago? Oh, quit about the dream. I don't want to hear about the dream. Well, it was about us bowing down to him. And I'm just saying, I mean, he might still be out there somewhere. Let's just not talk about it and make our way to Egypt and get some grain, okay? Something of that seems to be fair in what would be the travel to Egypt. And as they get there, maybe these things ringing around in their heads and their hearts and their stomachs growling, no doubt... They move from the crisis of the famine to the crisis of the family, to to another crisis. It it happens as soon as they arrive in that line of distribution, shuffling themselves forward to this ruler of the land, the one who was in charge of the dispensing of the grain and overseeing the exchange of money. Interestingly, this man, Joseph, who they do not recognize, immediately recognizes them. It's a curious part in the text, isn't it? Twice the text tells us he recognizes them. And twice we're told they do not recognize him. And maybe you ask yourself, why? (laughs) Why do they not recognize him? Well, it has been 21 plus years. He was a young boy. He would have changed probably more than any of them in the context. But I don't think that's probably the best way to see it. He has changed not simply in terms of age and growth. He's changed in terms of culture. He wouldn't have looked anything like he would have looked as a Semitic Hebrew in the time, a bearded young man in his normal traditional garb, he would have been clean shaven. He would have had smooth skin, tanned. He would have had that fine linen cloth with the signet ring and the golden necklace that was given to him in the last chapter when Pharaoh donned him, when vested in him with such power. He would have looked nothing like they have remembered, but they would have looked a lot like he would have remembered. 
same clothes, same beard. He would have recognized them, but maybe even possibly, this is often the case in the scripture, something spiritual may be going on here too. Hasn't Joseph always been the one who could see? He could see with the dream. He could be the interpreter for the cupbearer and the baker. He could be the interpreter for Pharaoh, the one who is a vision of faith into the mysteries of God. And aren't these brothers the one who have truly never seen the way that they should have seen, have looked at the world through the eyes of flesh, men who have acted in violence and betrayal, men who have thought of themselves rather than Uh, the commands and the instructions and according to the promises of God. Could could it be also that what's being relayed here in the text is not merely physical in appearance, but the recognition of a spiritual reality? At the very least, can't we say it mirrors it? This family crisis here begins to brew as they get close to the distribution. And we're told that Joseph sees them and he treats them like strangers. And the text, interestingly, says he speaks roughly to them twice. In fact, it says that Joseph did it, and then later it says, yeah, he did that. When the boys are actually rehearsing what happened, yeah, he spoke really roughly to us. Here is Joseph in this this moment of recognition where you have to, at least from a human perspective, think his palms are a little sweaty. Will they recognize him? Maybe his Pulse is quickened slightly. If I was in that context, I'd be looking at the ground and not looking into their eyes. I'd want to dodge that eye contact. Probably a part of him wants to go run and hide to not be seen. And maybe a part of him wants to really be seen. To to reveal who he is and who, who he has become. So, you know, slave boy done well in Egypt, if you know what I mean kind of like a lot better than you brothers. I would imagine as a normal, fallen, sinful human being as Joseph is, some of those things would be flying through his head, but that's not what we see at all. In fact, we see kind of kind of regal composure that concocts a plan, an interesting kind of uh, plan, a plan that decides not to reveal, but instead to treat them as if he doesn't know them. To speak in a, a caustic way to them. Now it would be easy to read that and think to yourself, well, that's to be expected. I mean, he's had 20 years to nurse this grudge. I mean, he's been done wrong. There's all this injustice. Except for the last passage, you may remember he named his children Manasseh and Ephraim, which actually speaks to forgetfulness and abundance. Uh, actually cataloging his own life or releasing his own resentments to the Lord. It's as if he's been a man who's been clear and free from these resentments. And in fact, when we look at the text and the rough speaking and the treating them as strangers, nothing in the text tells us that we should interpret it as if he's sinning, as if he's doing anything wrong. Though we in the flesh might tend to think that's the goal and the motivation, that does not seem to be necessitated in the reading of the text. In fact, what seems to be more to the fore especially when you see the unfolding of this text, is going to lead us, these actions are going to lead to the most beautiful repentance and reconciliation we see maybe anywhere in the Scripture. And here is Joseph being used by God to lay that foundation. How should we view this? We should view this as wisdom from Joseph. 
A wise man discerning and seeing is putting these brothers who are known to evil, who are known to deceit, who are known for violence, who are known for betrayal. He is putting them to the test. He is putting them to the test. Notice how he does it. You are spies. No, we're not. You are spies. No, we're not. You really are spies. Okay, okay, okay. But we're not spies. That's really the rhythm of the passage, isn't it? He's, he's putting pressure by bringing an allegation against them in order for them to defend themselves. Testing them with regards to what will come out. Oh, how supremely wise this is of Joseph. How discerning. Because he knows that we usually speak about ourselves and get defensive about ourselves when we feel unjustly attacked. As if someone is performing an injustice against our reputation or against our character. Maybe like the injustice that they actually did towards Joseph. Joseph here bringing an allegation, not a true one, but bringing it in order to elicit a response, in order to get a defense. He wants to see what are they going to say for themselves? Who are they going to describe themselves to be? And isn't it fascinating? We get a little bit of truth and a little bit of error. We are sons of one man from the land of Canaan. And there are ten brothers. Well, actually, there are, there are twelve of us. One's back, and there's a younger brother, and then there's one that, that's no more. And, uh, but we are not spies. We are honest men. No, you're not. I mean, yes, you are. You're some of those things. But honest men is something that you're not. You happen to be speaking to the one who really knows. Honest is probably not the way you should describe yourself to Joseph if you're one of the brothers. And in fact, you see Joseph in all of his other responses. What does he do? He picks up on the thread of honesty. He actually goes a little bit further. If you are honest men, then this. And he brings a strategy, doesn't he? We're going to hold one of the brothers here and we're going to, we're going to bring, uh, the, send the rest of you back and you're going to bring the younger brother to us so that we can verify if indeed you are speaking the truth, he says in verses 21 to 22. Oh, right, right. He's using the phrase honest and truthful and he's putting them to the test. In fact, he puts them to the test in a way that's very similar to the way they treated him. What did they do but take him into custody and put him in a pit? What is he going to do but to take one of them into custody and put them into a prison, a, a kind of pit? He, in a very real sense, at placing them in his own shoes, in the midst of testing, revealing what's in their own heart, is drawing out the question, have these men really changed? Now, let me tell you, that's very wise. It's very wise. It may seem, at least on the front, that you might say to yourself, really, isn't Christianity just always sweet and nice and kind? And aren't we just, shouldn't we be trusting of people? And shouldn't it really be that Joseph right here just says, hey, it's me and I forgive you guys and let's just be one happy family. Wouldn't that be the right thing to do in this case? Not necessarily. 
You know, when we think of ourselves simply uh, either with a cheap forgiveness, jumping back into a foolish situation without testing the wisdom and the truth of the relationships. In this case, men who have been known to murder as they have done in the past, known to betrayal, who have lived utter falsehood, it would be the better part of wisdom to put them to the test. In fact, these words, harsh and roughly, as they are described in the text, aren't so unlike um, Jesus meek and mild in the Gospels, who just is always sweet, isn't he? Not if you've read the Gospels. He has some very choice words for those who need to hear choice words. And a very unsettling conviction that he often lays at the feet who people need to have their cage rattled. And in fact, some of the best work that Jesus often does, he does with the sharp edge of a bit of a rough word. To draw out. To bring conviction. To begin to restore. We see Joseph with a tremendous amount of wisdom here pressing in on the question, I want to get out of these men what's in their hearts. I want to see who it is that they have become. And what's remarkable about his strategy is it begins to work. As God presses in and squeezes in from the outside with the famine, Joseph now as an instrument of God is pressing into their hearts. And we see in verses 21 to 22, they finally come forth with the truth. They say, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. In truth, we are guilty. It's the first time we've heard it out of the mouths of the brothers since the 20 years previous where they sold their brother into slavery. It's a remarkable moment. Little do they know, Joseph is actually listening. Can you imagine? The interpreter right there communicating to him that which he needs to hear about the conversation that's happening. In fact, it's so overwhelming for, for Joseph. And I don't even begin to assume that I would know what he would be experiencing emotionally at that moment. But I do know this. It overwhelmed him to the point that he had to leave and turn away and go and weep. A strong word that's presented in the Hebrew. Maybe it was the first time he heard that Reuben had actually tried to save him. For Reuben, you know, did that little I told you so moment in the text. I told you guys not to do this. And look, now the reckoning of his blood is on your hands. And maybe he didn't know that Reuben had done that. Maybe he didn't know there was a chance that he would have been liberated. Maybe he didn't realize, of course he wouldn't have, would he? That they had been carrying around this story, this hidden secret, all of these years and had been under the weight of guilt. And it's the first time, as far as we can tell, it's been spoken. And they're connecting it, aren't they? That what is happening to them now is by virtue of what had happened then, that the chickens, so to speak, have come home to roost, that the consequences of their sin are now finding them out. Real regret, real guilt beginning to be poured out from these brothers. Now, here's what's remarkable is that God is using what is these sharp words, this godly testing as a means of drawing out what needs to be heard and said. 
It's breaking down and softening these brothers and making them ready and prepared, as we'll see in the pages to come, when the moment is right for full reconciliation within the family. It's a beautiful picture. That famine in crisis leading to a family in crisis is actually leading to a bit of a faith crisis. Joseph regains his composure. He comes back. He fills their sacks full of grain, puts the money in the mouth of their sacks and sends them back. By the time they're on their way, their journey, they realize one of them has money in the mouth of his sack. It's going to look like they stole the grain rather than paid for it. Now we've got something else to explain to Pharaoh. If we ever go back to get Simeon, I'm sure that's going to go splendidly based upon this first encounter with Pharaoh. You can imagine how difficult this would have been for them. They get all the way home and what happens? All of them have the money in the mouth of their sack. And you can see that desperate cry being lifted up in verse 28. When they noticed all of this happening, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another. What is this that God has done to us? It's a faith crisis. God is bringing all these pieces together. Now the blood that was, as it were, on our hands, the reckoning is is here. God is doing this. That word crisis, what's a Middle English word? It's a word that we associate with desperation, right? Being destitute, a place of suffering and pain, a place with no hope or no resources. And that's a fair way of the way that it's used and defined. But you know it has a a richer entendre to it. It's a word that also means opportunity, turning point, a fork in the road, a time to make a decision. A crisis is a place where if things don't change, we won't survive. Something has to be done. As the Lord is bringing them and and orchestrating life from one crisis to the next, He's bringing them actually to a turning point. It's what He does with the people of Israel over and over. You, You may recall there was a time when Israel got hungry while wandering in the wilderness, coming out of Egypt. They were there for 40 years by virtue of their own disobedience and the consequences of not obeying the word of God and going into the land of Canaan and taking it as God had promised it to them. When God speaks to them in Deuteronomy chapter 8 through Moses and gives to them an explanation as to why he has let them wander for 40 years, he says this, You shall remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years. Here's the reason I've led you. and Here's the reason I've put you there. That I might humble you. That I might test you. To know what is in your heart. To know what is in your heart. You see, the goal of these crises with God, even when he brings them in the course of our own lives, as those who are followers of Jesus here today know, the crises that God brings into our life are not to destroy us. They are to remake us. They they are not to lay us low in order to snuff us out. They are to lay us low in order to raise us high. They, They are to break us down in order to build us up. They are to sanctify us. They are to save us. They are to grow us. The pain is for the purpose of God. 
He has an intention in the midst of it. It's there to bring us to a point where we will cry, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. What could these brothers give as an explanation? What would be adequate to make up for all that they have done according to Joseph? What could they pay back? To what degree could they make full restitution for all that they have done and the effects on Joseph's life over the last 20 years? Lord, have mercy. Lord, we just need, we need your mercy. The crises that the Lord puts us in, the difficulties that he places us in the midst of are meant to get us to a place, not where we try to pull ourselves up to make the next step, but where we learn to have a voice of prayer that cries out, Abba, Father. In fact, the crises of your life that may be swirling even right now, the pain points that are there, I can assure you, if you're in Christ... His goal is to shape you more into his likeness and image. He may be saving you by the crisis. In fact, how many of us can say that that's true in our lives? We were headed down a certain path leading towards disaster. The wheels were coming off. And then when we got to that place, low as it was, in the ditch of life was when we woke up and we, like the prodigal son, as Luke 15 describes, came to our senses. And we returned home to our Father. And we realized that the way of God is the way of life. Do you see this, this famine is to get to this point. This testing is to get to that point. It is for all of us to realize that nothing is going to stay hidden. Nothing is going to stay hidden. And Shakespeare was right about that. As Lancelot is speaking, it's hard to keep a murder hidden. The truth will ultimately out. Yes, even the secret things that happen in the quiet confines of your private life. Uh, Jesus tells us, will be made manifest. All the things which are done in secret, they will come to light. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is clear throughout the scriptures. He's showing us in Genesis 42 his kindness to bring these out ahead of time until it's too late. It's bringing us also to a place of despair, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. How many of you can really remember your secret sins? How many there are? And all the times you, you did them. And in all the ways that you didn't confess them. Good luck with that. So it's, it's worse than that. Because even if the ones you could remember are only a small sampling of the ones you actually committed. You see, when you begin to read those passages in the scripture, I hope that they do what they're supposed to do. Which is to send a bit of a shudder through your soul. As you think of the holy God, righteous God, judging the secret machinations of men's hearts, judging every idle word, and you think to yourself, I have no hope. What could I do to be able to get back into a good standing with this God? And you think to yourself, I can't even remember the things I did wrong to even make them right. 
which should lead you to exactly where it's supposed to lead you. Utter despair of yourself. You see, there is a thing called godly despair. Not of the clinical depressive kind, but of the spiritually wrought by God kind that leads us to a place where the only words we know to say are, Lord, have mercy. There's no way I pass this test. And God in his mercy says, I know. And it's why I have provided one to pass the test for you. I have sent him into the greatest crisis one could ever be in in human history. I have sent him to the cross to receive the just judgment and the full unmitigated wrath for the sins of all of his people. I have put him in the worst possible crisis. And I have put him in the worst possible crisis and have thrown at him every test, false allegations, injustice, betrayal, everything and more that Joseph has experienced. I've put him in that place and he has done it on the behalf of his people. And he alone is the one who passes the test. He alone. And you You pass the test if you're trusting in him. If you're trusting in him. All of his record becomes your record. As he takes all of your record on himself and pays the ultimate penalty for those sins. He gives to you the ultimate righteousness. So the day that you do bow before the ruler of the land... And you need entrance into a much greater place than Egypt. The new heavens and the new earth that he's gone to prepare a place for you. And you think to yourself, there's no way. I don't have the secret handshake. I don't have the key words to be able to get in, as it were, the pearly gates. Well, it's not a secret handshake and it's not a select number of words. It's the gatekeeper, the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only means by which heaven and earth are bridged. He stands at the gate and vouches for you. Not that you remembered every secret sin and you confessed it perfectly because you didn't and you never could. But that all of the ones that you committed and even the ones that you've forgotten, he paid for those too. And then in his kindness, welcomes you into the rest of his master. You see, what this passage is teaching us is that we need that greater Joseph, don't we? That one who will pass the test on our behalf. Someone's grades will be put in that are not our own, that are credited to our account by virtue of the justice of God. And you have that if you're in Jesus today. So listen, friends, you want confidence to come out of hiding? You just got it. There is nothing that you have done or ever could do in the secret recesses of your own heart or in the confines of your private residence or wherever that can't be brought to the shining light of day and held in righteousness before God 
through the clean record of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You want confidence? You just got it. You got it. It's not in you. It's in him. Yeah, Shakespeare was right. The truth will out. The truth about you will out. But better still, the truth about him will out. And that's the truth that stands. Father in heaven, we would ask for that truth and the reality of Christ to have a fresh and powerful reckoning in our souls even right now. We ask, Lord, that you would cleanse consciences in the midst of the worship of your people right now as a fresh awareness of Jesus falls on our hearts. We would pray, Lord, that today would be for some in this room the day of salvation, a day where they come out of the shadows and out of the hiding into the brilliance of your light. We would pray that today for all in this room, in an increasing measure by the way that we walk, we would be real people who walk with the real struggles open before you and with one another because we have a real Savior who has given us the confidence to walk in the real grace that's provided for us in the finished work of Jesus. Oh Lord, hear this prayer and more wisely than I would know to pray, answer it according to your will. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.